It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We are in the final stretch to election day, which means we are closer and closer to getting those ads off of your TVs. I'm going to miss the ads. Why? I like the ads boiling down important information into a 30-second ad so that you could persuade someone. I think they're artistic and fun. And I feel like we have just been watching the same ads over and over again in our media market. Yeah. Well, we've got that swing congressional race in the 13th between Wiley Nickel and Bo Hines. I think the two of them have produced the best ads of the 22 cycle. I haven't been so impressed by the Bud Beasley, the kind of typify what I think we all can agree has been a sleeper Senate race. It's just fun. I love election season. I like, you know, just that it's coming down to the wire and the ads are just kind of this intense reminder that important decisions are to be made. So speaking of important decisions, you're likely listening to this podcast on Friday. You can early vote Friday, Saturday up until three o'clock. And then it is the big day on Tuesday, November 8th. This Tuesday, a new poll was released, and we've been covering a lot of polls on the podcast, and most of them have been fairly close to one another. This one is a little bit different, and they polled on some different issues. The Meredith University poll has Ted Budd and Sherry Beasley neck and neck with 44% Bud, 43% Beasley, the rest going to the Libertarian and Green Party candidates. A lot of the disparity we're seeing in the polling has to do with the universe of who they're polling. I'm not going to say that these polls are inaccurate. I'm going to say it comes down to are Republicans going to vote at that rate? Are Democrats going to vote at that rate? Are unaffiliated voters going to vote at a certain rate? Of course, even if unaffiliated voters do come out the way you think they're going to come out, how are they going to split? This is where polling gets a little tricky at the end of a campaign. The Meredith poll actually spoke directly to that. They asked voters how likely they are to vote, and they're pretty likely. Democrats and Republicans who were polled, they were over 70% saying, yes, I am very likely to vote. And unaffiliateds were in the 50s. But what was really interesting is that when you're looking at age ranges, as you always hear, (laughs) older voters, they go to the polls every election. And younger voters, 18 to 24, are less likely to actually vote. It's a chicken and egg argument. We hear it from young voters all the time. They're not talking about the issues that matter to us. Well, they're not talking about the issues that matter to you because you don't vote. You got to get off Instagram and TikTok. Put that cappuccino down. Go down and vote. Stop eating your avocado toast. Yeah, they know if you're voting or not. They have an index on you. We talked about that a couple (laughs) weeks ago on the podcast. But grandma and grandpa are voting, and that's why you're going to pay for their social security when it all goes belly up. (laughs) If you are Gen Z, please tag Brian Lewis. (laughs) Tag me. I know you're on Twitter, so just go ahead and tag me. Other things that the Meredith poll pulled about were the things we have seen in their past polls, favorability of different politicians, 
And we heard a lot when Nathan and Morgan were on about right track, wrong track of the country. And over 70% of people polled here said the country's on the wrong track. This could be Democrats and Republicans. I think a lot of folks out there feel like we are just spiraling downward. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to vote? That's the big question. We saw in the congressional generic ballot, really focused on the U.S. House races, Republicans are definitely favored by three points. So that's got to benefit the Bo Hines over Wiley Nickel, which is the one really swing race in the state for Congress. We talked about it last week. You can make the argument for the Sandy Smith, Don Davis race as well. And the margins for the North Carolina Senate and North Carolina House We know that generic ballot is smaller than three points. It slightly favors Republicans. But one thing that was interesting in this Meredith University poll is that the Supreme Court races here in North Carolina show something different. They show that the Democratic candidates are ahead just by a little bit, but That is significantly different than what we saw in the John Locke poll last week, where they had three or four points difference between the candidates. I have a theory. I wonder how many folks are going to the poll this election season and are voting for a Democratic Supreme Court justice here at the state level because they're concerned about the Dobbs decision. Of course, the state Supreme Court has nothing to do with the Dobbs decision. But we know that's on folks' mind. Might be one of the glitches we see here in this poll. Governor Cooper seemed to do well in this Meredith poll. He had the highest approval ratings of any of the politicians that they listed. And we kind of talked about this in their past polls. Biden, Trump, Roy Cooper Mm -hmm. always appears to poll very well. But the two major political parties, Republican and Democrat, folks really don't have much use for them, according to the numbers. Two big points from this. One is that a majority of people who were polled said that they didn't think either party governed in an honest and ethical way. And almost two thirds of the people who were polled felt that a viable third party would be better than the two major parties. So what say you about that? It would explain why the unaffiliated voter out there is part of the fastest growing political party and also reflective, I think, in the voter turnout. I mean, unaffiliated voters are really making a name for themselves. Now, we've heard the political operatives say, ah, you know, they're just they're still Republican voters. They're still Democratic voters. It would be interesting to see if a well-funded, truly reflective candidate of unaffiliated voters was to run. Like that centrist right there on the 50-yard line, how would they do in an election? We have yet to really see that. I think the last time was... Who would that person be? Paul Tyne, former representative, came to the General Assembly as a Democrat, switched over, I believe, to unaffiliated while he was serving. Did he go to the Republican Party? I know he caucused with No, he caucused with the Republicans, but he never, I think, switched his affiliation. Mm -hmm. A Paul Tyne, a Kirk Devier. I know he's a proud Democrat, but someone like that who works in the middle. Mm Mm-hmm 
could they prevail in an election? I think you take this Meredith poll and then you put a real viable candidate out there. I think you're on to something. Like we said at the top of the podcast, we are in the final days. And in those final days, there has been some information about where folks are putting their money. A gift from Mike Bloomberg, former presidential candidate, media mogul, gazillionaire, patron to a lot of Democratic causes. He dropped a million dollars into the North Carolina Democratic Party last week. That campaign finance report was certainly getting shared on social media a lot, deriding it mostly from Republicans. And we learned that some of that is being siphoned off over to Fayetteville and the Wilmington area for those Senate races. It looks like most of that money is going to Val Applewhite and Marsha Morgan, but there are some other last-minute spins, and on Tuesday, campaign finance reports were due for the final time before the election, so those numbers have been trickling in. Additionally, Lucille Sherman with Axios tweeted about a group that also put in some big money, more than Michael Bloomberg, actually. The group is called Good Government Coalition, and they donated their money to a group called Citizens for a Better North Carolina, and that's for Republican candidates. They donated about $3.6 million. And she also said, oh, I thought this was a lot until I looked at 2020. And they donated over $10 million in 2020. A lot of folks, Sky, have been asking us if we're going to make some predictions about the General Assembly races. So we heard on the Under the Dome podcast, they're like, oh, we're not in the business of making predictions. And you and I both said, we are. Mm -hmm. We're going to go ahead and make some. I think you and I agree on this. It looks like Ted Budd's in the driver's seat for the U.S. Senate race. Definitely. Uh, Go ahead and say, you know, not taking a leap of faith there, but I, I would think that Bud has the edge. Now, I am willing to say I think he exceeds 4%. I, I know a lot of folks think this is going to be a close race. It's going to be within the margin of error. We're not going to know a winner on election night. I think we actually will know a winner on election night. Now, it remains to be seen if Sherry Beasley concedes the race on Tuesday night or not, and that's her right. That's up to her. But I think we will wake up on Wednesday morning and we will have a new U.S. Senator. It's going to be Congressman Bud. Now we get a little trickier getting down to the General Assembly races. A lot of moving parts there, but I'm willing to make some predictions. Okay, proceed. I believe that the Senate will get a supermajority at 30 seats. I think they'll have 31. You think 31. Yeah. All right. So we got our first differentiation here. The Senate Republicans have 28 seats. They believe in the can. They need to get two more. And I think those two are Senator Michael Lee down in New Hanover County. I believe he gets reelected. And Senator Bobby Hannig up in the northeastern area of the state. I believe that he is elected to that seat. I believe the Democrats do hold both seats here in Wake County. So I believe Sidney Batch will be reelected. Mary Wills Bodie will be elected there. And I believe that Val Applewhite prevails down in Cumberland County. House is a little trickier. I don't think they get a supermajority in the House. What do you think the number will be? 
7071 puts a lot of power into some of the moderate <laughs> Democrats. Who, yeah, did you hear that rumor that they thought some Democrats would change registration? I don't know where that comes from. Like, I'm trying to think who would flip. You'd have to think Michael Ray is someone who is seen as a moderate Democrat, but I don't think he really comes out of that area as a Republican. Could be wrong. What I do think you're going to have is a situation where they have a working supermajority as it pertains to budgets, but you're not going to have a working supermajority as it pertains to maybe the social bills, you know, the immigration bills, abortion, guns, things like that. And could be wrong. You know, someone asked us on Twitter what our thoughts were of the Brian Echeverria race. And the Democrat in that open seat down there, I believe this is the seat being vacated by Larry Pittman. What is the Democrat's name? Diamond Staten Williams. That race has gotten pretty ugly. been well documented that the Democrats did a mailer showing Brian Echeverria in a mugshot. Now he had altered. Yeah, it was altered. He had some legal problems uh, as far as some finance things going, but was never arrested. Now, Mr. Echeverria did produce a Facebook live video this weekend in which he called out the Democrats, you know, said it was implying racist overtones to it. That race, I believe, is going to be a race to watch. Cabarrus County, tough place to win. Cabarrus County was predominantly Republican, but as more people migrate from Mecklenburg County and maybe they travel into Charlotte for work and they're moving into Cabarrus, even into Union County, the metrics there are going to change a little bit. So we posted some races that we're watching and people reached out to us. Why didn't you mention this race? Why didn't you mention that race? We also left off former legislator Bill Brawley, who's running in Mecklenburg County, in the suburbs there. And he is running against Laura Budd. You've seen a lot of Laura Budd ads this week. One ad where she is differentiating herself to say, hey, I'm not related to Ted Budd. And then the Republicans running an ad against her, like using the this Bud's not for you. If we left off your favorite race that you're watching. I'm sure everyone has the races that they're focused on. And I do believe there's going to be some upsets. There's some races that we don't have on our list here, but this is a good starter for you. Tuesday night, bring it out, use it as a scorecard. This is what we'll be looking at, but I am sure that we will have some surprises on Tuesday night. But yeah, I predict 70-71. You have a prediction? I really don't know. Okay. Turning to some non-election related news. A couple things happened this week, and they both involved the UNC system. UNC Chapel Hill's case was before the United States Supreme Court that got a lot of media attention. This case has to do with admissions and affirmative action and how much race can play a role in that admissions process. The current law now, and this is borne out in case law prior to this case, but is that race can be a factor in accepting someone into a school. It cannot be 
D factor. This case heard Monday. We are unlikely to get a decision for months down the road. Speaking of the university system, Governor Cooper held a press conference this week with former UNC system president Margaret Spellings, who used to be secretary of the Department of Education at the federal level, and Tom Ross, who was also the UNC system president for some time. He's president of Davidson College. So Governor Cooper signed an executive order that would create a board to look into the UNC system's governance and how to make it better. He was talking specifically about political influence into the UNC system and how the General Assembly really plays into that. Now, the twist here is that that board would give recommendations to who? The General Assembly. (laughs) So what is the point of it all? I do not know. (laughs) That report is due July 1st. I think we'll be in the middle of budget talks or right at the end of budget talks, depending on if you're an optimist or a pessimist. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. I have a feeling that this report is going to go in the trash can. The speaker said he had no interest in hearing recommendations. So last week we were loading up the podcast for a midnight drop on Friday morning. And we got the terrible news that Senator Stan Bingham, a longtime Republican-serving legislator from Davidson County, had died unexpectedly. Reports are that he died of natural causes at home. A lot of outpouring of love and adoration for Senator Bingham and his longtime legacy of service in the General Assembly, both when Republicans were in the minority and when they were in the majority. I worked closely with Senator Bingham. Last time I saw him in person, it was about four or five years ago, I was hired by NC Child to produce a video for Tom Vitaglione. He was getting an award, and they wanted me to produce a 10-minute film that they were going to show at a banquet in honor of Tom. Now, Tom is, by all accounts, a progressive, and one of his best friends in the General Assembly was... Senator Bingham. Senator Bingham shows up at NC Child, and I got to film Senator Bingham talking about Tom's work and their work together in child advocacy, work I had done as well with Senator Bingham. And it was a nice moment to have Senator Bingham there, then Governor Hunt. I mean, just shows just how, what a lovely man Senator Bingham was. In addition to being a great legislator, Senator Bingham was also funny man, quirky man, had just one-liners. Some of his speeches on the Senate floor, if you want to look up a funny speech, is when Senator John Garwood was leaving the Senate and Senator Bingham's send-off of Garwood was for the ages. I remember Baznight, Senator Baznight was laughing so hard that he was crying during Senator Bingham's speech. But a couple things that I'll remember about Senator Bingham's quirkiness. One, he never wore a knot tie. He had three clip-on ties that hung in his office that he would pull down and clip it on on his way to a floor vote or going to committee. The other was that Senator Bingham, he liked to make things. In addition to making the latest edition of the oximeter, which, you know, you give to any senator who 
who speaks too much during a week. Uh, Senator Bingham prided himself in making a car that the engine was fueled by discarded restaurant oil. So he would go to restaurants in Davidson County, he would take their oil, and he would use it to fuel his car. And he was so proud of this. And, and Senator Bingham, I asked him, like, you know, does it run well? And he says, it runs good enough for me to get away from the dogs that chase me around town because <laughs> they smell the vegetable oil. But anyway, uh, Senator Bingham died at age 76 this past week, and our hearts go out to his wife and his family, his colleagues, his friends. We certainly join in mourning Senator Bingham. We will miss him. With the election coming up and all of the information you've heard about elections, whether voting is secure we decided to talk to Damon Sircosta, who is the chair of the State Board of Elections. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Damon Sircosta, Chair of the North Carolina State Board of Elections, welcome to the podcast. Oh, good to be here. Good to be with you both. To start us off, tell us a little bit about your role there. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? So the North Carolina State Board of Elections is the agency tasked with making sure that our elections run smoothly in North Carolina. Many states, most states, uh, this role is fulfilled by an elected official, a secretary of state. Uh, North Carolina is somewhat unique in that instead of having one person do it, whose name will be on the ballot, we have five people do it, a board, and none of our names will... Mm -hmm in at least my case, ever be on a ballot. <laughs> and that gives us a, a couple of advantages. First of all, we've got representation from both, both major political parties. And then second, we can build consensus. We can hear opposing takes and conduct the elections in a way that Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated voters can all be confident in. This podcast is dropping the Friday before Election Day. What is your life like during this early voting period, what is your life like on election day? And then I guess more importantly, election night and the days after. Sure. Well, leading up to the election, it's not like we just start in August mm-hmm. and get everything ready. There's a there's a whole process that we do every year to make sure that the elections are secure. First and foremost, we follow the law. So statutes are always changing. We need to make sure that we're up to date with the latest that the General Assembly is doing and make sure that whatever we're doing is compliant with the General Assembly. Second is a tremendous amount of planning needs to go into this. Things that people don't think about. Ballot proofing, testing our equipment, directing the counties to acquire polling places or new equipment or what they need to to run the elections. Counties really run the elections. They're the people who hire the staff and purchase the equipment and do all that sort of stuff. And the state board, what we do is is oversee that process. So it's a full-time endeavor We have a very wonderful full-time staff at the state board to do all this work. Our job on the board is to make sure that everything runs smoothly. Mm -hmm. So in the weeks leading up to the election, obviously it gets more busy. Uh, We're making sure that uh, everything's going according to plan and that all of these systems that we've spent a year, multiple years, uh, refining work. 
I like to say that elections are very similar to a shuttle launch, right? It's not like uh, the astronauts just show up on a Tuesday and launch that sucker. <laughs> I mean, years of planning going to any shuttle launch, but you really only have one chance to get it right. And we're in the launch phase right now as we're speaking. This isn't your day job. So how much of your time right now is spent with state board stuff versus your day job? What does that look like? Yeah, so uh, you're right. The State Board of Elections is a volunteer position. Technically, we're compensated by statute uh, $15 every time we have a meeting. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I do have a day job. I I, I run a charitable foundation here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I also teach a little bit at Duke University. From a just pure time standpoint, I'm guessing in these weeks I'm spending – eight to ten hours a week during the the more fallow times of year it's probably three to four Mm -hmm. the problem is i can't shut off thinking about it the space shuttle is on the launch pad (laughs) and i've got this day job and it's got its burdens and pressures and i have to make sure i deliver for my employer but i just can't shut it off and so i'm thinking about it almost all the time and i think that's the true certainly for my fellow board members but even more true for our paid staff who is thinking about it and compensated all the time. You know, these folks during this time of year work untold amounts of hours, both at the state level and at the county level. Uh, our election professionals are really nonstop for months before the election. When the state board of elections makes the news, it's usually through some partisan lens. There's a disagreement. There's a hearing. There's a vote. Can you talk a little bit about the politics of the state board, how it's structured politically? Because there is some appointments that are made by the Democratic Party, by the Republican Party. But how do you guys work together? Can you talk about that? Sure. So you're right. It's an appointed board. The governor appoints uh, all five members. Uh, Those five members are appointed upon recommendation of the two largest political parties. So three by the party of the governor. Governor Cooper is a Democrat. There's three Democrats two by the next largest party. That's the Republican Party, and so there's two Republicans. And that cascades down into the counties, correct? So every county uh, follows that, for broad strokes here, that who's governor, that party is represented at the county levels. Essentially, yes. The counties themselves are the entities that really do the blocking and tackling of Mm -hmm. our elections. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a county board of election in all 100 counties. It has five members. Three of them are member of the governor's parties. Two of them are members of the next largest party. Now, here's something interesting. The statute reads the next largest party. But I think you all know, and many of your listeners will know, the largest party in North Carolina (laughs) is no party at all. Um, Unaffiliated voters are a tremendous amount of the voters that we have in North Carolina. And so I believe it makes sense to have differing opinions and differing views on the board of elections. Mm. And the parties serve as the best proxy I think we have in in modern society to to get that diversity of views. But there's a whole bunch of people who um, don't affiliate with either party. And it'd be good if we could figure out a way that we could still maintain uh, the governor's prerogative and the next largest sort of philosophical entities to uh, maintain that that diversity. But, uh, you know, I've... There's a lot of unaffiliated voters who I think would (laughs) would like to see some change there. What you don't see in the news is most of our work is by unanimous vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, We things come to us. We talk about them. We make sure that we all understand and can come to some sort of consensus agreement. And we take a vote. And typically it's unanimous. What makes the news is when it's not unanimous, (laughs) when it's. Uh, 3-2 or 2-3. When I got on the board as the chair in 2019, the very first vote I had to take was around making sure that we had 
paper ballots in North Carolina. So the legislature passed a law that says that we need to make sure that every ballot has a paper ballot. That required us to purchase some new voting equipment. And so we were making sure that the standards for that voting equipment were up to snuff. My very first vote was a 3-2 vote. It was me and the two Republicans casting it one way and the two Democrats going the other way. Wow. And so I think people like to exacerbate this notion that everything's partisan and everything is, is political. And really, when we're doing our job right, it's not. Now, certainly there's a, there's a worldview that each political party possesses, and I would be naive to say that those conflicts never arise. One of the things I think we don't do a good job of in society generally is trying to understand the opposing point of view. And so if you look at voting, on one end of the extreme is this notion that our, our ballot should be secure, and that's a good thing. And then you look on the other end, it's our, our voting process should be accessible, and that's also a good thing. And most of the arguments in election administration are how do you balance those two goods, accessibility and security. I think we do a really good job here in North Carolina. We've got a phenomenally secure election system, and it's got a fair amount of accessibility into it. But that's not by accident. That's over time you know, as both parties have controlled the various branches of government, coming to some sort of consensus about how the election should run. So you're talking about how the elections are secure in each county and also the partisan makeup of all of that. Can you kind of guide listeners through how this isn't partisan in county elections and also the state election despite having political appointees? Oh, certainly. Well, so the first thing we need to think about is, is we got to talk about who really does the work of making sure your elections are secure and accessible. The vast majority of people who are engaged in that work are civil servants. Mm -hmm. They are your local elect, you know, your local county official who is working uh, as the elections director. Or if they're the people who are staffing the polls on election day or during early voting, those are paid folks who come out and do that. The money is not huge. It's out of a sense of civil service. And these are your neighbors. These are the people you go to church with. So the most people who, who do this work are not political appointees per se. They're staffers, professionals. Our job on the board level is to oversee that. And I think that's one of the reasons North Carolina is so much better than some other states is, is because... Name names. What states? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this. Elections in the United States are phenomenally well run. It's yeah. all the noise we've heard over the last couple of years about how this is happening or that is happening. All the states are like us in the sense that most people who are engaged with the process are professionals, civil servants, don't have a political dog in the fight. States vary about which partisan entity is overseeing that. But the work of all voting in the United States really is the work of professionals who don't really have a political fight. It's interesting. I used to be an election reform advocate. And as such, I knew who was running for office. And I was very like, oh, this person and that person. And since I took this job, it's people, I'll see a name on a sample ballot and I'm like, oh, I know them. I didn't even know they were running for office. You know, you start seeing elected officials not as uh, what their policy platform is, but as just another name that you need to make sure that you get right and make sure that that ballot looks done appropriately and under the, under the law. So that's really the ethic of all the people who are engaged in election administration is it's not really a partisan vibe in these offices. It's, it's very much a civil servant vibe. These are people who really believe in democracy in small d democracy and want to make sure that that happens our good friend tim boyum over at spectrum news he's produced a podcast about it he's done a story on capital tonight 
those professionals at the county level and at the state level are really taking it on the chin going back to 2020. It's been a tough time for them. There is a narrative out there that elections are are rigged. What's your response to that? I wish all of the people who are trying to further this narrative about our elections being rigged or that whether or not they're, they're done uh, appropriately and professionally, I wish they could spend a little time with the people who do it. We have a an executive director at the state board of elections. So our five member board hires an executive director. The woman's name is Karen Brinson bell. <laughs> she was a, an elections director in Transylvania County. Very Republican County. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and if you look at how election administration professionals view this work, it's almost sacred. We're not really interested in the outcome. We're interested in the process. And if we get the process right, the people will decide who will govern. That notion is probably the North Star for the vast majority of the people who do this work. And the people who don't have that as their North Star don't last in this work very long. Because what you realize is, is our job is to follow laws. And our job is to make sure that the process is done appropriately. And because of that, we're not really interested in who wins and who loses. I mean, it, I, I, I say that almost tongue-in-cheek, but really there's a lot of truth to it. Obviously, I still care passionately about uh, the policies that will be enacted by the people who hold these offices. But it's secondary to making sure that we got the process right, and a distant second at that. And that's true for the Republicans who do this work, and that's true for the Democrats who do this work. We're all very, very interested in a process, and I think that's what, that's what gets lost. So to those people who have these um, the naysayers and, and, and the people in the world who are trying to further this narrative that these there's something flawed with these elections. I want them to come check it out. I want yeah. them to spend time with us. And I want them to um, engage in the process because you learn very quickly once you do that, that our process is solid and the people who do it are really exceptionally caring and wonderful people. And one of Tim's underscores in his productions was that at that staff level, we're talking about very diverse political affiliations or non-affiliations among these directors. And they all seem to agree on at least one thing, and that is quit with the death threats, quit with the threats of violence, and come watch us do our job. But, you know, we're just trying to administer the elections the best we can. I've met dozens state or county election directors. There's a hundred of them and I've met dozens of them. Most of them I've met at some point or another. I couldn't tell you which political party they belong to or how they care about particular issues because it's just not what we do. Right. It's not what we're interested in. In times like we're in where everything's polarized and there's such discontent with the direction our country's headed, it's so easy to cast aspersions on those who are executing this process. End of the day, the only way we're going to solve that is by getting more engaged with people who don't see the world the way in which we see it. And I think that's a true benefit of how our board of elections are configured here in North Carolina, is it forces me to spend time with people who have very differing political views. And what you learn really quick is, yeah, we might not see the world the same way, and we might not agree on what we should do with our tax dollars or how our schools should be run. But we're all really just trying to, to do good. Mm -hmm. the, the, the instances of truly evil people on this planet are thankfully very, very small. And so even though we spend a lot of time in and around people who are very much like us, this process 
forces you to spend people who disagree with you politically. And I think that's a good thing. You described yourself prior to taking this job as a reform advocate. How did you initially get involved in or get an interest in elections? I ran for city council when I was 19 years old in my hometown of Flagstaff, Arizona. And the way in which that worked is you needed to get nominating signatures to get on the ballot. Mm -hmm. So I did what you do when you're in college as I went up and down the dorm room and said, hey, are you, uh, are you registered to vote in Coconino County, which is in mm -hmm. Arizona? And people say, yeah, and you get their signature. And then you try and get a buffer amount of signatures. So I think I needed like 500 and I got 800 signatures. And one of my opponents challenged the validity of my nominating petition. Wow. Here I am, 19 years old, trying to run. My platform was is that I, I grew up in a college town and the college kids weren't really representative. And I said, well, here I am trying to run. And you know, somebody who's got more resources than I do basically pulled a lawsuit against me to say my petition wasn't valid. And, and you know what? They were right. I got 800 some odd signatures, 300 and some of those folks were not registered in the county. They were registered at their parents' house oh, or registered wow. somewhere else. And by the numbers, I was out. Wow. So I called my treasurer, who was a lawyer, wonderful guy, and I said, what do I do? And he said, I'm happy to help any way I can, but you'll be better served if you try and figure this out. So this is in the 90s, so there's no vast internet. So there was a law library. He pointed me to the law library, gave me uh, the name and uh, phone number of the paralegal who worked the law library, and I tried to figure out a defense to keep me on the ballot. Ultimately, I don't think I would have been successful. So instead of put the system through that, I went to law school instead <laughs> to study election law. Uh, in law school, I ended up working for a, a legal externship for Senator John McCain wow. on campaign finance reform. Uh, I was there during uh, the McCain-Feingold campaign finance bill that became the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. And uh, got to monitor the proceedings there and report back to the senator and his staff. And so, so I'm probably the only person in the country who has worked for both John McCain and Barack Obama, the 2008 <laughs> nominees. But they both had a very similar approach to how elections work, yeah. uh, which is you want to make sure that they're fair. You want to make sure that, that, that the people lead. And I was really honored to work for, for both those folks. So that's how I got into election reform. When I moved here to North Carolina... Um, I worked on some judicial elections. They were publicly financed at the time, and that got me involved with the election reform community here. Uh, I took a job uh, at something called the North Carolina Center for Voter Education, and we went to work on issues like ballot access and campaign finance reform and all those things. So I've been interacting with the State Board of Elections most of my professional adult life in North Carolina. What's the biggest surprise for you? going from the outside to now the inside, the chair of the board you used to try to get reforms from. It's clarified for me the roles of the different players in the process. When you're an advocate, the question is always, why not? More, more, more. We can do more. We can do better. And you know, as an advocate, I think that's the appropriate role to play. When you're inside on the board of elections, you're confronted with the strained, uh, constrained resources you and your staff have. So as much as we would like to spend all of our time making sure that every advocate's, every question is answered, we've got this election to run and we don't have the luxury of a lot of time to push or to respond to the push of, of advocates. So, so the biggest change is 
I always thought on the inside looking out, well, why don't they do this? It's the right thing to do. And now I'm like, oh, I see. It's not because they don't want to. It's because we've got a gazillion things going on and we're a constrained agency. But I'm sure there's a Damon Sircosta out there that is pressuring you now, right? Someone who took your place, who's who's saying, Damon, why can't we do more? What's your conversations like to the extent you can tell us? Earlier when we were talking about that first vote I took where I was uh, voting with the two Republicans yeah. in a 3-2 in a vote to, to certify some election machines, I was surprised by the amount of vitriol from some of those advocates. Mm. I had thought that, well, they all know who I am. I've been around in the election reform community for 15 or 20 years. And what I forgot to realize was that was a long time ago. <laughs> and these people don't know me at all. And right. so it's one of those things when you, when you see those advocates and you know they're doing everything they can to push their ideas into the system, that our, our, our job is not simply to bow to advocate wishes, whether or not those are advocates on the left or on the right. Our job is to do our level best to make sure that elections are accessible and secure and accurate. Can you talk a little bit about how you interact with the staff? Like, what's that look like? Well, so we hire an executive director, and the executive director uh, manages the staff at the State Board of Elections. Uh, I have weekly meetings with her and our general counsel and associate general counsel. We set the agenda for what we need to be working on. We talk through all of the issues that might be coming up what might be happening that I need to be aware of. I'm very careful not to meddle in their work. They're doing the work and they don't need board members in their ear every minute. But I'm also very careful to make sure that they understand that the board by statute is the, the group of people who are charged with overseeing this election. And so we've got a wonderful working relationship. Uh, I know that our staff is very responsive to all five of us as board members. And, and our, our job there is to make sure that they have the tools they need to do their job. Why North Carolina? What brought you here? Well, Brian, we, we heard good things. I, <laughs> I met my wife in law school. So one of the many, many benefits of not being uh, elected to city council when I was uh, a teenager, maybe I might've been 20 at the time, um, was I ended up going to law school and I ended up meeting uh, then Amy Dutton, now Amy Sircosta, <laughs> and she is from the Midwest. And she said, I would like to move to a big city like Chicago. And I said, I would like to move to Maui because I'm a surfer and there's some really good waves in Maui. So we compromised on San Diego and that lasted about a year, maybe a little bit more. And we realized in San Diego, which is a great place, by the way, that San Diego had happened and we were looking for what was happening. Hmm. We wanted to not be in a echo chamber. We didn't want to live where... Everybody thought the way we thought, and so we were looking for a quote-unquote purple state. And my only criteria beyond those two things was I'd like to be able to get to an accessible, surfable coastline mm -hmm. and be home by dinner. And so we picked uh, Raleigh, having never been here before. We sold all of our furniture, and in 2005, we drove across the country. There's nothing like driving through Kansas with five surfboards on the top of your mm -hmm. car and people looking at you like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we showed up here and it's been a wonderful place. We've got two uh, wonderful kids who live here and were born here and we consider ourselves as North Carolinian as you can possibly imagine. So you came here for the coastline, but word on the street is that you actually haven't been to our coastline in a while. That's yeah. true. Well, you know, these elections don't run themselves. So it's, <laughs> it's been a lot of work and I'd like to get out there you know, interestingly enough, 
autumn in North Carolina is the time of year where there's the best surf. Autumn in North Carolina is also when we conduct elections. So uh, the first several, (laughs) I think the first couple of years I lived here, I surfed once a calendar month. And then as my professional life and my family life got fuller and fuller, it's been harder and harder to get out there. But I know Brian surfs, and so yeah. we're, we're probably overdue for a, right. a trip to the coast. We have been on a couple day trips together, you, me, Ian Arcuri. This guy, by the way, excellent surfer. You're, you like the big stuff, which I always admired. I mean, you, you get into the big waves when I remember one day it was pumping at Surf City. Didn't you break a board out there? I Yes, I've broken a, a board at Surf City. I, 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 I'm trying to remember which board I broke when we were together. but uh, It was a huge day out there. Surfing and elections are very similar, right? Yeah. The, the power is not in the surfer, it's in the wave, right? The power mm-hmm. is not in the election administrator, it's in the voter. Mm-hmm. And, and our job as, as surfers is to try and harness that power, and our job as election administrators is trying to make sure that, that the voters really lead the way. That's a great metaphor. Well, there you go. <laughs> Do you use that with everyone? <laughs> no, it's the first time I use it right now. I, I'm feeling fairly smart about myself right now. <laughs> it is zen of you. <laughs> okay, we ask everyone this question, but you have highlighted this a couple times during the interview just about how partisan our politics are now and how divided we feel as a nation. What is one thing you would change if you had a magic wand? I just read a wonderful book called High Conflict that talks a lot about this, about how we get out of this this divisive morass that we have found ourselves in. And she, uh, the author of that book, has several suggestions. I will say this, and I know that you all are in the media business, so I don't know how practical this is. I got off social media several years ago. I Uh, I don't have a Facebook, uh, don't have a Twitter. Um, I think I'm on LinkedIn, which might be... I guess social media, I'm not sure. But the point is, once you start having offline conversations as opposed to online conversations, you see a fuller picture of the person you're talking to. I've got two close friends whose name I won't mention, one from the left and one from the right, and they argue on Twitter, at least they did a couple years ago, all the time. And I know them both. And they're mean to each other. And they're mean to everybody else. And it's vitriolic and it's ugly. And they are two of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And if they were able to sit down off of Twitter with one another, they would really get along. They, they have a lot in common. So the biggest thing I will suggest is, is okay, if you're going to be on social media because you need to professionally or all that sort of stuff, really curate that. And before you engage in the, the dialogue that makes you feel better about your side, whatever that may be, think a little bit that the person on the other end of that keyboard probably has more in common with you than you think. I'm going to button this up with the surfing. You know, there's a few surfers at the General Assembly, uh, Senator Bobby Hannock, Representative John Bell, Representative Brian Turner, Bart Goods and Jimmy Milstead. Maybe people just need to go surfing together. You know, Brian, I think you're the perfect person to organize a trip. (laughs) I'm a little busy between now and November 8th, (laughs) but I've got a wetsuit and sometime this winter or next spring, I think you should put together a a surf trip. I'd I'd be very happy to join. A do politics better surf trip. I see it. Well, Damon Sircosta, we appreciate everything you are doing in North Carolina, everything you're doing to facilitate our elections. 
You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you both. This was wonderful. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. This was a fun interview. Thank you, Damon, for stopping by the office. We know you are incredibly busy going into the election day on Tuesday. Best of luck to all of the workers out there that make these elections work, the volunteers, the folks that even work the polls for your political parties. It really does make the system work, and we appreciate your service. Tweet of the week. This week's tweet of the week is from Seth Palmer. He's at Seth underscore Palmer. And it's referencing the Tying It Together podcast where Morgan Jackson and Jim Blaine were on. So we would direct you to listen to that. But it says lots of great insights on this week's Tying It Together, Tim Boyum TV. But the best was from Jim Blaine. And the quote is, NC congressional districts are like toilet paper, single use only. Definitely filing that away for future use. It was the best quote of that podcast. I'd like the Kim Kardashian of the... Is Kim Kardashianization. Of politics by Morgan. I thought that was really good. But yeah, hey, multiple plugs this week for Tim's podcast. In exchange, he let me plug the podcast on Capitol tonight last week. So yeah, Tim did a great job this week previewing the election. I enjoyed that exchange between Jim and Morgan. So we got to go to an in-person meeting on Monday. I don't know if I've said this before, but it's hard to be in a meeting with you. Yeah, okay. It's tough. You could be in a super serious meeting, and then you're just sending me hilarious observations, and then I can't control myself, so then I just start laughing, and I look like an idiot, and I look rude. (laughs) (laughs) So I can feel my watch buzzing, and after a bit, I'll have to just... Stop. But then not thinking, I have to actively think about not looking, but then I can see a smirk on your face, which makes me laugh even more, which it just turns into a little sideshow. Yeah. And, you know, we're just making little observations about, you know, I find it interesting, young people in particular, the way they dress. Yeah. There is a coolness to the way some folks, especially young folks, dress. I feel like... Yeah, you you like to comment even on the street about men who uh, roll up the bottom of of their pants. Yeah, what are you doing there? Why are you rolling up the bottom of your pants and tightening them? I believe that men in particular like to really have messy hair when they go to meetings, like just make it all disheveled. And I think that must take hours to get your hair to look so messy because you're trying to kind of look cool like Harry Styles or something. Doesn't it feel like you would just put your hand in the gel and just kind of go and then you're done? I don't know. I don't really have enough hair to stop. I haven't had a brush in about 15 years because I keep my hair so short and I'm balding. (laughs) So I, I don't need a brush. I just dry my hair and there I am. You comment on my outfit's Every day without fail. There's sometimes I just, I know, 
as I'm getting ready, yep, this is going to be one he's going to make fun of. You have many looks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes you come in here and you look like a movie star. And then some days I come in here and you look like you're going to go serve on the Jedi Council at Star Wars. Like, what? Yeah, like this long golden robe that goes over your slacks. and Slacks? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I just find it That's my tarot card reader look. Oh, your tarot card. <laughs> you idiot. Right. But here's... <laughs> Here's the thing about Sky. We're in downtown Raleigh, and unfortunately, downtown Raleigh does have a lot of homeless folks here. And without fail, a homeless person, every single day, we go out on a walk <laughs> or we're walking up to the bank or whatever. Someone says, wow, you look really great. I walk to the office and I'll walk through Moore Square. And I've told you before that there's a man in there that he'll like critique my outfits too. He'll be like, you looked better yesterday. <laughs> I'm like, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go kill myself. Now. <laughs> Did you get any compliments on the way to work today? I don't think so. But when we went to vote the other day, the older women who were working there, I got three different compliments on my outfit that day. Yeah. We went over to the Chavis Community Center. I was telling someone in our neighborhood who's also working polls and carry that the Chavis Community Center, like their volunteer, they were cooking out. I mean, yeah, there was a lot going on hamburgers there. Hamburgers and hot dogs, all that. I mean, they really throw down there. And we had no wait. And in 2020, we went to NC State to vote. Remember, we had to wait in that long line, like up the stairs. We mm. had no wait the other day. No wait. You know what my favorite part of voting this week was? What? When you hung up on Kirk Devier. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had to talk to Robert Wilson, who used to work, he was volunteering at the polling station. And, you know, he used to work for Secretary of State Elaine Marshall. But here was my favorite part is Robert said, hey, man, I was disappointed. I didn't see you on the ballot for Raleigh mayor. My April Fool's joke of 2021 is still paying dividends here in 2022, late 2022. Folks really thought I was running for mayor. I don't even live in Raleigh. Let's get into that. We both voted for Brian Lewis for <laughs> Soil and Water Commissioner. <laughs> I was like, must be a stand-up guy. Let's go. Brian Lewis, yeah. The libertarian. Yeah. I don't know what a libertarian's position is on soil and water, but Brian Lewis, you got two votes this week. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to Election Day. We're going to spend Election Day together. We're going to see some returns coming in Tuesday night. By the way, i got to make a plug for you as we fade out here. You are going to be a guest on WREL throughout the night. They're going to be checking in with you about your analysis, and I'm looking forward to seeing that on It's TV. not throughout the night. It's from 9 to 10. Okay, from 9 to 10. That'll be good. So Pretty late. <laughs> that's Yeah, pretty late for you. Yeah, e even on election night, you're going to go to bed early, aren't you? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I'm looking forward to seeing you on TV. I think you have a lot of great insights that I think their viewers will appreciate. So on election night, we will be watching those returns. We'll be here at the office. If you'd like to stop by, we'll have some food. Feel free to stop by. Just a drop in or stay for a while. We'll be around. 
and we will be updating our Twitter feeds with what we're seeing. So feel free to give us a follow there or tag us in races that you want to see us watch. A couple people have done that so far. And next week on the podcast, we will break down what happened. But until then, go vote, especially if you're young, go vote. (laughs) And please remember to do politics better.